This is Maribel Quesada-Smith. Welcome to Diferente. As promised, I have something very special for you while I'm on break. This is one of my favorite episodes from season one. I wanted to share it with you again because it had such a great impact on so many people. In fact, to be completely transparent and honest, this episode inspired me to search for my own therapist and find my own way into healing and um, empowerment. But that's a story for another day. Here's episode 109 with licensed clinical therapist from California, Adriana Alejandre. When I was 13, my parents put me in charge of finding our new family home in Columbus, Ohio. Now, keep in mind that we were immigrants, so the whole process was very new to us. I spent hours looking through the Homes for Sale magazines, you know, the ones that they have at the grocery stores, circling ads and calling realtors for information. I was 13, so imagine how young my voice sounded. Many realtors hung up on me, probably thinking that I was pranking them. I didn't understand why they thought it was odd that a 13-year-old wanted to schedule a time to tour a home. But finally, one day I got lucky and I found a realtor who understood that I was trying to help my parents. And so she became our guide. On the day we closed, and I say we because I sat at the board table of the title office with my parents while they signed everything, the realtor congratulated me for my tenacity and fearlessness. I was happy to know that I made an impact, but I didn't think I had done anything out of the ordinary. And so I went on growing up sort of fearless in a way, always going after what I wanted without backing down. Then as I got older, things started to happen that made me doubt my abilities and I became more fearful than before. According to my friends, I'm still very much of a risk taker, but I know I'm not the only one who has to battle with a sudden lack of confidence that sometimes creeps in. That is why I wanted to explore the topic of fear and how it affects our confidence. And I invited Adriana Alejandre, a licensed clinical therapist in California, to join us for the ride. Adriana specializes in helping people through trauma, grief, and loss. Most recently, she has become a disaster mental health worker to assist in national disaster relief efforts, including helping survivors of Hurricane Harvey and the Las Vegas massacre. If you've ever experienced self-doubt, which most humans do, or if you're wanting to make a change in your life and fear is stopping you, then this episode is for you. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming to you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you experiences and lessons in life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Adriana, welcome to Diferente. Thank you so much for making time to join me today. Thank you so much for having me today. So I want to jump right into it and talk a little bit about you first. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional experience? Yes. So I live in California, and that matters because of my license. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. But the funny thing is that I don't see couples people that are in marriages, and I don't see families. I prefer to see individual clients that struggle with anxiety and trauma and anything that comes from that. 
So essentially, I'm a psychotherapist here in Los Angeles, and I'm a new podcast host of Latinx Therapy. Which is a really great show. I've been listening a little bit. Congratulations on that. So we're both kind of new to the scene, I guess. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Can I ask, what made you decide to be a therapist? So my whole life, I didn't really know I wanted to be a therapist. But I guess the short answer of that is it wasn't until after I had my son, after my freshman year of college, that I struggled with postpartum depression. I want to say that I struggled with it briefly, but it was that whole experience that I was going through as a new mom at 19 years old that made me really hyper-focus on mental health, made me really aware that I truly wasn't the only one and that there's so many people and that growing up my culture specifically had tried so much to hide the sun with one finger and it wasn't happening. So it really made me intrigued to learn more about human behavior, the human brain and everything that comes with that. You had your son when you were very young. Is that something that kind of, I don't want to use the words got in the way, but what, how was that? Like, how did you handle going to school and being a mom full time? I wasn't doing well before I had him. I had a hard time adjusting going from a 98% Latino school to UC Santa Barbara, where there were more ethnicities there, primarily Caucasian individuals. And growing up in my household, Caucasian individuals were kind of held on a pedestal for whatever reasons that my mom had specifically. So I was very intimidated there. I wasn't adjusting. Classes were difficult. I wasn't prepared. I didn't go to a good school necessarily. I had great grades, yeah, but it wasn't compared to that level. When I had my son, I really, really got so motivated to do better, to just start fresh, be so focused on him. I was a single mom at that point. And so he really ignited that fire that I didn't know I had. I got on the dean's list. Um, Everything turned upside down in a positive way. So he was truly a blessing. It was difficult in the sense that I had to miss out on the typical college experience, but Mm -hmm. I don't regret it one bit. And mentioning the cultural side, I think that is so interesting because I was just going to ask you if we could talk a little bit about that stigma that exists in our culture on going to therapy. I, I don't know how it was for you growing up, but I never, ever thought that I would see a psychologist or a counselor when I was growing up. I basically grew up being told that vapor rub and gargling with salt solved everything. And it took me a long time to trust in the power of telling a stranger my problems. How did you grow up and what do you think about that stigma in our culture? I didn't grow up necessarily with that stigma that, oh, you're not supposed to talk to anyone outside of the home. So I feel like I got a little bit of a different perspective than other friends of mine, because I completely understand and have heard that before, where it's like, you're not supposed to air your dirty laundry to a third party, someone that you don't know, someone that's not inside the home. So it was pretty normal for me. I didn't feel uncomfortable. I felt a lot safer talking to them than to my parents because with my parents, I kind of felt like there was a lot more judgment. So I was seeking to get out of that zone and just talk like with an open heart and just get it all out. 
Yeah. And you know what? You bring up a good point because I feel like I used to also think that it was something that was unattainable. Like getting therapy to me seemed like something only people who had a lot of money and a lot of time could do. In my culture or in my family, we looked at therapy as this dark thing that we didn't really know anything about. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started going to therapy myself in college that I started to understand how valuable and how helpful it could be. But it really took a long time for me to trust the process. What was a turning point uh, for you in beginning to trust that you needed to see someone as a therapist? I was just in a really dark place during my pregnancy. I was very lonely too. I was really confused. It was my first boyfriend and he had just, he left me in a terrible way. So that was like a very clear sign for me that when I had him, my son, Jaden, I needed to see someone. Did you notice a change quickly after you started therapy or when did you start to see that progress? I didn't go to therapy for very long either just because I was still very overwhelmed with the new lifestyle. But I did notice a change as soon as they named that I had postpartum depression. Once I was given that diagnosis, it was like I could see. Now I know what to do a little bit at 19 years old. I know where to go. I know I need to get out of this. So a little bit of a change in gears here. I want to talk about fear of change. Mm -hmm. And that's why I really wanted to have you on the show because I know that you specifically, your expertise uh, deals with fear. But specifically, I'm very curious about exploring fear of change that happens when we're thinking about taking risks in our lives or careers. I have been wanting to explore that a little bit. But to be honest, I've been fearful of exploring that also because I've kind mm -hmm. of been telling myself, no, 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 it's nothing. I can fix this myself. I'm not afraid of anything. But the truth is I have been. As I've grown older, I've become more afraid of taking risks and more afraid of just uncertainty, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for. Yeah. And I know I'm not the only one. I think that most people experience fear of change and also fear of taking risks in their lives and careers. Maybe tell us a little bit about your expertise when it comes to mental illness as it relates to fear. Yeah, well, that's that's a super broad topic. But fear, fear is very common. And yes, it does evolve with you. It changes. It isn't. I think it actually stems from anxiety and the symptoms that go with that. I believe that everybody lives with anxiety. And the thing that I teach is that people have to understand that there's good anxiety and there's bad anxiety. Good anxiety is that anxiety that motivates you to get a task done. Like there's a deadline coming up and it's close to the, the deadline and oh crap, you haven't done it. So I'm going to get my butt up and finish my work before the deadline. Bad anxiety kicks in when the deadline's coming up and you're ruminating, you're in your mind, you're in that cycle, you freeze, or you get extremely irritated and you take it out on people. So I think it's really important to analyze, is this good anxiety or is this bad anxiety? Because it's not all bad. I believe that everybody lives with anxiety. Everyone struggles with it. Not everyone has the diagnoses of generalized anxiety disorder, but 
everyone does struggle with it here and there. When you get really bad news, sometimes you feel that anxiety inside you. It doesn't always last, but you feel it. And it manifests in so many different ways for Mm -hmm. everybody. And some people can get through it, I think, a lot easier than other people. I think that that's also the difference in when someone decides to seek help and someone doesn't. Because some people really do deal with anxiety a lot better, you know, or deal with stress a lot better. Mm -hmm. That too. Your resiliency levels are really dependent on risk factors. So factors of your life history. If you had more trauma as a child, then your resiliency level maybe is not going to be as high as someone who hasn't had any childhood trauma. You know, that's very interesting that you bring that up because this is something that I've been struggling with as well. When I was younger, I was what I would consider to be fearless. Mm -hmm. I just... I was a go-getter. I wasn't afraid to get up and speak in front of people, including adults. And I certainly wasn't afraid to do things that I thought might be challenging. But as I've grown older, I've noticed that I've lost a little bit of that confidence and I've lost a little bit of that edge of being able to perform under pressure, so to speak. And even the public speaking thing, I will tell you that I started noticing after college that I would get anxious before having to do anything that had to do with public speaking. But I did not have what I would think was a traumatic experience growing up. I mean, I had a pretty healthy, very decent, very good childhood. I don't know where that could be coming from other than maybe just what my environment has shown me. I don't know if the stress of life has made me more fearful. How does that even happen? Like, how can you go from being a totally, I guess, quote unquote, normal kid who has no fear to being an adult who has a certain level of fear and anxiety. Everyone's stories really differ, but what comes to my mind just in a nutshell is that it could be because of the societal constructs, the societal perspectives, how you're viewing life growing up. I myself was very outgoing and, and, loved public speaking when I was younger. Yes, I would turn red, but I would enjoy it. Now I don't. And I have Mm -hmm. the same sentiment that even behind the mic, it's very intimidating and I get high levels of anxiety. But I'm hearing you say that growing up, you didn't have childhood trauma. Growing up, I did have childhood trauma and yet we're in the same place. And I truly believe that it's a matter of what we have experienced growing up Perhaps you witness something or you experience something. It could have been very, very subtle. Your brain held on to that and continued manifesting based off of that. It could be something related to self-esteem where because of one experience, your automatic belief became, I am bad at public speaking or I am not worthy and you're experiences could have then be built based off of that belief that I am not worthy. I am bad at X, Y, Z. We're humans and and this happens. The fact that you're aware of it is really good because awareness is what helps us shift change into a healthier lifestyle of living. You know, I've also noticed that many people who are unhappy with the way their lives are going 
I, I have friends or family members, they're unwilling to make a change. Even though they're not happy, they're too scared to make a change because they don't know what's on the other side. So they would rather stay where they are stuck mm-hmm. than actually peel off the Band-Aid and jump into something different. Why do you think people become more fearful to take risks as they grow older? Again, many reasons. But one thing is that it's comfortable just being complacent. It's comfortable not having to readjust, not having to start all over. When people have to see a new therapist, they become paralyzed to a certain degree, metaphorical degree, because they don't want that process of starting all over when they have to turn a new page, right? I believe it's it's truly in the same way that fear causes that hesitation, all the doubts. I'm going to bring it back up. It's all that anxiety that fumbles your mind and clouds your judgments. And I think that some people feel like that's normal and they just kind of push it away and don't deal with it. Do you think there's a normal level of fear? I like to think of it in terms of like there's a healthy amount of fear versus an unhealthy amount of fear. And again, that's based off of like people's experiences. I have a ton of fears, a ton, a ton, a ton of fears. I'm a very complicated person, but I don't allow those fears to direct my life to a certain degree. There's also normal fears, for example, for the for anyone that has been in a mass shooting. It is very normal for them to not want to go back to anything that triggers them. If they continue for years though without processing it, then that becomes unhealthy at a certain point because they have to process those fears. They have to get professional help for that. For those things, it is necessary to overcome those triggers. Because, for example, with these Mm. survivors of mass shootings, specifically the Las Vegas one, it happened where there was music, where there was high buildings. And if they live, for example, here in Los Angeles, there are high buildings. There are going to be high buildings anywhere else. And so it's going to be very complicated to live a normal, quote unquote, life being around these triggers. And for those reasons, it's important to process fears. On a more normal level, if someone even witnesses something you know, traumatic that causes them a fear, it could even be a car accident, like a first-time driver being on the freeway, and then they witness an intense fender bender, right? Or whatever, some, some type of accident. Mm-hmm. And then they, they don't want to continue driving anymore, which happens often. That fear is normal, yes, for a few days, a few weeks, but they have to process it in order to move past it and continue living their life the way that they want it to before. Is the only way to process fear through therapy? I know people don't necessarily agree with me, but I believe that people have to try different methods to process their stuff, their realities. I like to use realities, by the way, instead of issues, because I feel like issues can be stigmatized, can be stigmatizing and labeling. So just putting that out there, trying to spread the word. So I think that people can process their realities through exercising or yes, therapy, give that a try. Uh, Some people truly, truly thrive off of meditation. 
there are various forms, even socializing. But of course, everything comes to a certain degree. When you need professional help, you need professional help. A friend will not give you that same guidance that a professional counselor will. So it just, I truly believe that it depends on, on the issue and how it's bothering you. I just recommend to always give therapy a chance mm. at least and make sure that you find a therapist that suits your personality. You're not forced to be with one therapist. You can, you have the option to choose among many. Nowadays, you can actually do therapy remote, I guess. There's been a lot of talk about getting help through online services, and these are verifiable licensed therapists. A lot of times, I've noticed that it's hard to find a therapist who will take your insurance, so then you, we do have more options now when it comes to that. You don't necessarily have to go through insurance, and you can get a discounted rate. So there are options out there for every type of need. What do you think is the best advice you could give to someone who is looking to get some professional help as far as how someone should go about seeking that help? Depends on their resources. So if you have insurance, call your insurance and get a list of therapists that are within five to 10 miles of your zip code and do some research on what they specialize in and call the ones to uh, consultation sessions over the phone, you know, to ask them the questions that you need. If you are going to pay out of pocket, but maybe you can't pay, you know, the full rates that they're going for, I do recommend openpathcollective.org. Uh, they have therapists there for 30 to 50 a session, or it could go up to 80 if you're doing couple session. All the therapists there are verified. So then if you are searching for a therapist completely out of pocket, I do suggest thinking about what you want to work on in therapy and kind of on a general sense, if it's anxiety, if it's depression, if it's life adjustments and see which therapist in your state or in your area specialize in that call them for use their free consultation session. They're usually like 10 to 15 minutes. Some could go up to 30 minutes and ask them about what therapy modalities they use. Do they use cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, psychodynamic? And if you don't know what those are, ask them. And if they fumble, you know, which they shouldn't, while they're telling you these modalities, then you're going to get a feel like, yeah, this is the person for me, or uh, I don't really like how they explained it to me. But it sounds like I need to do research on this modality. So yeah, I, I would just suggest doing your research so that you really get a feel for who you're going to be talking to for the next few months. That connection is really, really important, because that is what trust is built upon. I think that more than anything, connection is very important because it makes the therapist also human. Of course, the therapist cannot make the session about them. And every single therapist is also different. I'm a younger therapist. I'm a therapist under 30. So I probably have different views than older therapists, but I am more on the open side. I do let my clients in so that I can relate to them if I find that to be clinically appropriate and will benefit my clients. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And now that you bring that up, I understand 
the perspective and why possibly a lot of people in our culture and not just the Latinx community, but, you know, even the African-American community and other minority cultures might not feel as comfortable seeking professional help when it comes to therapy because they might not feel like they can connect with their therapist. Maybe that's part of the issue, not having the availability of being able to relate to someone. Yeah, I've been hearing that so, so much. I, I get many emails about that. And it's very sad because people are reaching out for mental health help and are being turned off by it because and, and quitting on it because there isn't that connection. And again, it's not going to happen right away. You guys do have to give the therapist a chance. But that's why that consultation call is really important because you're going to get a sense of the person. And the therapist should also tell you and guide you like, we're not probably going to be a good fit, but here are my trusted colleagues that I think that you would maybe have a better fit with. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You said something else that I think was super interesting. You said that your therapist is human and there need to be human attributes that you can relate to. And I think that you're doing such a great job with that when it comes to your podcast, you're sharing your own struggles and your own path through therapy and what led you to seek help. And I think that puts you in a very vulnerable position, which is interesting because I used to think that therapists should be these (laughs) have it all together, (laughs) perfect human beings, because how am I going to get help from someone who is also a mess? That's kind of what my thought process is. What is your opinion on that, sharing your vulnerability as a therapist? I think we have to. I mean... I have gotten that feedback that clients like to know that they're not the only ones in the room. They're not being judged. You know, I don't mind being judged if they're going to judge me. We have to focus on other things, positive things, non-related to me, but related to the client. We have to find that something that makes us laugh, that makes us humans and disconnected from our diagnoses, from our traumas and anxieties. We have to find that light. And those moments, those vulnerable moments, if they are found through me, I'm okay with that. As long as my clients turn out okay, as long as they feel satisfied and get something out of it. And many of them do. I'm interrupting this awesome episode to ask you a favor. Will you take a few seconds to leave a review? Tell me what other topics you would like to hear on the show. It takes less than 30 seconds to write a review and you can help change lives. Okay, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but that's the kind of impact that Diferente is all about. A brighter outlook, a different perspective. All of this can be life transforming. Going back to fear a little bit, I want to talk about how fear and confidence relate. I think that fear has something to do with a lack of confidence. At least that's what my experience has been. Do you think they go together? Yes, because confidence stems from self-esteem and self-esteem has a lot to do with our fear levels. If we have high levels of self-esteem, then our fear might not feel as strong based off of a certain situation. But if my self-esteem is pretty low on a certain day and I have to make a decision about a job opportunity, a life-changing thing, then I'm probably going to hesitate a lot more and feel a lot more fear. And maybe 
fear is going to win and it's going to stop me from reaching my potential. So I do think that confidence has a lot to do with it. And we do have to see where our self-esteem and our confidence levels are at, which they vary on a day-to-day basis in order to have our other aspects, fear and everything else, a little bit more under control. What are some helpful tips you can share with us about how to deal with the way that fear affects our confidence? So some helpful tips would be to... One, bring awareness and notice the situations that are triggering some of those fears. Because again, the more that we aware we are of these things, the better we'll be able to handle them and manage them. So that would require to just notice your insides. I'm going to share a little bit of education on what happens on a general level when we feel fear. This is going to be a little bit of the physiological stuff. When we are under threat or when we feel afraid, that fear, this is intense fear. So what happens to our insides is all related to our nervous system. Our nervous system gets activated. Specifically, it's called sympathetic nervous system. Okay. And what that does is it makes us not be hungry anymore. It makes us not want to use the restroom anymore. It just, it it makes the forearm a little bit stronger in case we need to fight, okay? And it dilates our pupils. When we relax, when we realize that we're not under threat anymore, when there's no more fear or when it's lessening or when we activate that other nervous system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system, we activate it by taking some deep breaths because oxygen will help you all think better. And by deep breaths, I mean exaggeratedly slow, deep breathing. Like how many counts? Three-fourths of your lung capacity. Don't go like, you know, all the way. (laughs) Just where you're comfortable, like just a little bit above the half point part. It varies because everyone has different lung capacity. So eight seconds in, 12 seconds out. The longer, the better. Because that's really, really, really going to activate the relaxation nervous system inside you, which is technically called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that reactivates the tummy to be hungry again. That activates everything else, you know, to just get relaxed inside. There's no more threat. Your pupils go back to normal. You're in a state that's more relaxed. Of course, you feel tired, though. You may get sleepy at that point. So physiologically, that's what happens to our bodies. And a lot more happens. So I would just suggest like searching those two terms of the nervous system so that you know what's actually happening when you're feeling afraid because things are happening. And again, the more that we know, the better we are able to manage it. I heard you mention earlier that you're going through some life adjustments, right? And that that's causing some fear in you some hesitation. So when we are feeling high levels of stress, our bodies actually do shorter breaths of air, like the, like almost Mm -hmm. like hyperventilating. We breathe shorter because of stress, which is not good. We have to take more inhalations, deeper, 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 hold it for about five seconds and exhale, diaphragmatic breathing. I'm over here breathing deeply while you talk. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's very soothing. It's very relaxing. I promise you, the more you practice it, the more of an art finesse you're going to get and you're going to benefit from it. And the awesome thing is that this technique is free. Meditation will also um, be helpful for those that gravitate towards that method. The arts are very, very helpful. Just I'm not an artsy person, but when I have paint in front of me and a paintbrush and paper, I just mix some colors and try to do something pretty or weird. And it's very soothing. It takes my mind away from the fear for the moment. But my last tip is that you cannot ignore the fear because the more you ignore something, you're just prolonging that from staying in your life. You do have to face it. In your practice, you help people gain autonomy and control of their lives. Can you tell us a little bit about how people can do that? You got to go to therapy to do that. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because everyone's situation is so different, it's difficult to give like a one, two, three step type of thing. But using those techniques, being more aware of your surroundings, finding what soothes you first Coping skills are not a one-size-fits-all. So what helps me probably isn't going to help you. Maybe it might, it might not. Yeah. But I have my clients try for various weeks different techniques to see what they gravitate more towards. And with all of the techniques, I like to have them use their senses. One of their senses or all of their senses. Smelling, sight, touching, tasting, different ones, because that is really what's going to drive them to be grounded. You need to be grounded before we start getting into the work that is going to cause us fear. And in the therapy room, we do 50-minute sessions, a little longer sometimes, but typically on average, it's 50-minute sessions, one time a week, if it's not a situation where they're in crisis. And I promise you, The thoughts that come up in therapy related to fear don't just stay in the room. They also are triggered outside of the therapy room. So for that reason, I teach them coping skills in order for them to be able to better tackle those fears that are going to come up, the thoughts, the dreams, because I'm not always going to be there. So I think that's really important for anyone to gain autonomy you know, not be dependent on the therapist or friends for you to find what is truly relaxing to you. I hear so many people tell me like, nothing relaxes me, N none of the typical stuff, hanging out with friends or arts and crafts or running, nothing, no exercise. There has to be something because we're all human. Everyone has something, we just have to discover it. And we can make that path super fun if you allow that if you allow it to be fun. Let me jump back to confidence very quickly again. Mm -hmm. What can people do to feel more confident? And do you think feeling confident has something to do with knowing your worth? Uh, that's key. You have to know your worth in order to feel confident. You have to know your value in life, in your career, in every aspect. Because I may feel super confident at work, but then at home, I may feel very worthless based off of a situation everyone's story is very different. So you have to align your confidence so that it's pretty much higher than average on all planes, on every aspect that you have going on in your life. And that's going to be very unique to everybody that's listening. We're never going to reach 100%. We're always going to be evolving. And we don't want to be necessarily at 100. We want to be close to it, like 
90-95, but it's okay if you're not at 100%. Sometimes that's an unrealistic marker and it disappoints us when we can't reach it. We always want to make sure that our goals are realistic. I'm glad that you said that, that you don't have to feel confident every single time and you don't have to feel 100% confident. But obviously, it does help when it comes to living and when it comes to achieving. I think it really, confidence definitely ties back to achieving and it ties back to being happy because you are able to do more when you're confident and you're able to take more risks when you're feeling confident. So true. how can people work on valuing themselves better? I would invite you to ask yourself if you are depending on someone else for this. And based off of that, you're going to know that if it's codependency, find activities to do more on your own that fulfill you without needing others to fulfill you. You need to do things a little bit more on your own if you gravitate more on the codependent side of things. And that'll be a gradual thing. It's not going to be from night to day. So be patient with yourself. What about the environment that you're in? The environment that you're in really matters. If you're in a toxic environment, then you're going to be pessimistic or unhappy. Your quality of life isn't going to be the same. So you have to extract yourself from toxic relationships, toxic environments, work even. If you're not happy at one place, you know, try gradually going to a different type of job. I have a couple more questions for you. Mm -hmm. How can we do better for the culture so that people can feel more confident and feel more comfortable seeking help, seeking therapy? Educating themselves on the resources that are available is very important. Sharing all of this information. I'm sure people don't know that there are also free resources depending on your situation. Nonprofits do mostly free counseling because they have their trainees provide those services, yet they're being supervised by someone that's licensed. And knowing that there are Spanish-speaking clinicians, they do exist, they're out there. I think sharing the knowledge is going to be very helpful for our culture and being open towards it, just giving it a chance. Last question. I ask all of my guests this. What is your passion? That's a difficult one for me right now because <laughs> I'm really like right now just taking a break from things because I want to rediscover myself. But what it has been, for sure, without a doubt, like my heart is beaming right now. My family, of course, they're my passion. And my dog, I love him. Advocating for mental health for sure, is definitely a passion of mine. Can you tell us where people can find your website and your podcast? Yeah, so everything is under one roof, basically. Uh, you can go to www.counselingandtraumatherapy.com. And on there, I have a tab where it says podcast. And you'll be able to find the podcast there. My services are also in Spanish. So when you go on counselingandtraumatherapy.com, there's going to be an Espanol link where people can go and find everything that's on my website in Spanish. Perfecto. Entonces hubiéramos hecho esto en español. También podemos. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel like we've learned a lot this episode, especially when it comes to how confidence and fear relate to one another. If you want to learn more about how to find the right therapist for you, 
or maybe get some other resources regarding therapy, head to our website, diferentepodcast.com, and click on the show notes for this episode. Adriana and I put together a list of resources that will be very valuable to anyone who needs to find a therapist, whether you have a large budget or no budget at all, and all of the questions that you need to ask when you're looking for the right therapist. Don't let your mental health be the last thing that you think about. In this day and age, you need to put yourself first before you can take care of anybody else. So turn on that meditation app, light your candles, take a deep breath, and share this episode with someone who needs to hear it. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you like this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.